Making new worlds visible with the Gemini Planet Imager, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to the travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. They call it GPI, and it has already outstripped the abilities of all other instruments that allow us to see planets circling distant stars. We'll talk with scientists Bruce McIntosh and Frank Marchese about this remarkable new device. Yes, Virginia, there really is a polar vortex. In fact, as we'll hear from senior editor Emily Lakdawalla, there are many of them just within our solar system. Bill Nye has been ogling the great new images from China's lunar rover, and Bruce Betts will give away another year in space wall calendar during What's Up. Emily, there are so many other things we could talk about, but I absolutely would love to talk about polar vortices across the solar system, a blog entry that you posted on uh, the 9th. This is pretty significant because I guess there are some people who have been questioning uh, whether this is a a real term or whether it was just invented by uh, nefarious folks who believe that climate change has some human element to it. Well, if those nefarious folks must be able to travel back in time and put the definition of polar (laughs) vortex into Al Roker's Meteorological Dictionary (laughs) from 1959, he pulled out his copy of his American Meteorological Society Dictionary, talking about this feature that actually happens anywhere you have an atmosphere over a spinning ball, which is pretty much anywhere you have an atmosphere, because anything big enough to have an atmosphere is usually ball-shaped. It spins, it sets up these whirling motions in its atmosphere, and usually you wind up with a polar vortex at one or both poles. I love this because Al Roker actually said to uh, Rush Limbaugh, in uh, his uh, demonstrating that this is a term that has been in use for uh, well over 50 years and probably much longer than that, he uh, he said, so stuff it. You provide examples elsewhere in the solar system. As you just said, there are some terrific images in this blog uh, post. I think it's really cool. This is a, a really good example of something that unifies planetary science. When you're a planetary scientist, you tend not to specialize on just one planet. You use each one of the planets as sort of a test case, slightly different starting conditions, different gravity, different composition, but same physics. And the differences among planets can tell you a lot about how physics operates on slightly different starting conditions. So you look at places like Venus and Mars, both of which have these oval-shaped wave number two polar vortices. They're slightly oval shaped when you look on them at the pole. Or then you can go look at Saturn and see its famous polar hexagon. It has a a wave moving around its pole with a wave number of six. That means there's six up and down motions. And when you look down upon it, upon its north pole, you see its famous hexagonal shape. But they're pretty much everywhere in the solar system. And that makes me kind of wonder, are we going to see a polar vortex in the atmosphere of Pluto when New Horizons flies by next year? Because Pluto does indeed have an atmosphere with wind and climate and meteorology. So we probably should find one there. I uh, wouldn't be a bit surprising, would it? And I will mention that you have an animation of Saturn's north polar vortex, probably only surpassed in its beauty, maybe, by the Earth polar vortex, which anybody can also uh, see if they look around the web without uh, taking too much time. Emily, thank you. I'm glad we took some time to talk about this today. Thank you, Matt. She's the senior editor and our planetary evangelist at the Planetary Society and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope Magazine. Up next, Bill Nye, the science guy. Bill, how about those Denver Broncos? The Denver Broncos. Yeah. Orange orange jerseys. Yeah, them. 
<laughs> and they beat the Chargers for the uh, AFC the lightning championship. Bolts, lightning bolts, atmospheric uh, friction on their helmets. And the funny thing is, you're the football fan. I turned it on because you were finishing the game. And I turned it on in time to see this beautiful live shot of the moon. Aha! Yes! <laughs> it's amazing. Those cameras are so good on modern television. They, oh, they really are. HD does it. And there on the moon, something was looking back at us. Yes! The U-2 ro uh, rover, the uh, Jade Rabbit from the Chinese Space Administration, a fantastic mission. And these new, super sharp, crisp pictures are coming down, and we have them posted on the Planetary Society website with, of course, excellent commentary from our uh, Emily Lakdawalla. It's an extraordinary thing. Chinese nation has committed to this. They are step-by-step, step, no pun intended, uh, moving out farther and farther into space. And I say congratulations to them. And these, these latest pictures, which are being made available to us in the West with our, uh, that kooky internet that the kids use, uh, it really, these really are spectacular pictures, and it's a spectacular accomplishment. It really is. And they're going to keep it up. I mean, next they want to do sample return. Just as the Russians did robotically, barely uh, seven months after humans walked on the moon, after our beloved Neil and Buzz, and it's really, a, it's a step. It's a step in taking human steps on our nearest celestial body, the moon. And this is really something for everybody in the world to consider that the Chinese government or Chinese space administration is not doing this just to find out about the moon. They're doing it because they know that by having a space program, they will innovate. Society will come up with new ideas. They'll solve new problems, problems never been solved before. And we'll learn something. We learned so much about the age of our planet by looking at the age of our planet's moon, the mm. rocks from our planet's moon. It's an extraordinary time. It's an extraordinary time in space history. Bill, thanks very much. Talk to you again next time. Thank you, Matt. Go Seahawks! <laughs> he's, uh, he's a Seahawks fan. He's a Seattle guy. That's Bill Nye, the science guy, the CEO of the Planetary Society. The holy grail in the world of exoplanet discoverers is finding a second Earth. We're not there yet, but steady progress in that direction has taken a big leap forward with the Gemini Planet Imager, now integrated with the Gemini South Telescope in the mountains of northern Chile. This exquisite device saw first light just a few weeks ago, after years of development by an international team. Leading that team is Principal Investigator Bruce McIntosh of the Lawrence Livermore National Labs and Stanford University. Previous guest Frank Marchis is also on the team. He's a senior planetary astronomer at the SETI Institute and serves as public officer for GPI or GPI. The three of us recently talked by phone and Skype. Gentlemen, congratulations on a, a really spectacular first light for the Gemini Planet Imager. Bruce McIntosh, it looks like you're only just getting started. Definitely right. We've, we've been on the telescope for a total of, of 11 nights. Most of them spent doing engineering, only a little bit to start doing science. And in fact, 
one of our students counted that there's been only a total of six working days to reduce and analyze data um, since the end of the last run between that and the, the meeting at which we presented the results. So it's a very spectacular start, but we're looking forward to getting it fully tuned up and starting to do new science and discovering new planets with it. So there is much more to come, it sounds like, from this uh, instrument. I mean, how much better? Is it, these images are already, and the performance is already so uh, terrific. How much better might things get? Right now, we're probably about a factor of 10 better than, than sort of what's typically done with previous instruments. And there's still room for a factor of two or three improvement, um, especially very close to the star. So right now, we could see planets at the equivalent of out where the orbit of Saturn is in our solar system, and we would like to push that into being seeing planets at the equivalent of the orbit of Jupiter in our solar system around nearby interesting stars. So there's definitely some room for tuning up um, once we get all the data analyzed from this current run before we start a large-scale survey looking for new planets. I will also add that uh, we did not yet use the full potential of GPI. There is still uh, and some unknown. We don't know how faint we can go, like in terms of the type of star we can observe. The preliminary images you just saw are just like the brightest, the easiest for the moment. And we expect to do something more difficult in the future, like search for exoplanets around stars, which are very much fainter than what we have so far. Is GPI, working at uh, the Gemini South Telescope, going to be capable, can you imagine it being capable, of finding a planet that would be Earth or super-Earth-sized in the so-called Goldilocks zone, uh, the uh, the range in which uh, water would be liquid? Unfortunately, from a ground-based telescope with current technology and current telescopes, that's not possible. So um, although GPI is extremely powerful, even when we get it tuned up, we'll be able to see planets maybe 10 million times fainter than their parent star. And an Earth-like or a super-Earth planet would be more like a billion or 10 billion times fainter than their parent star at those kind of separations. So it's a step on the road towards that. But GPI is really tuned to look at giant planets and also to look at not just old giant planets like in our, like Jupiter in our solar system, but young giant planets. What we're seeing in these pictures is the infrared radiation from hot young planets, um, 10 million, 100 million years old, that are glowing with their original heat that was released during their formation. And so using that, we can study systems, planets like Jupiter, maybe planets down to the mass of Saturn, if we get extremely lucky. But if you really want to see Earth or super-Earth planets, that would require a 30-meter telescope on the ground or a dedicated space telescope using some of the same technology. Well, and of course, we have 30-meter or so telescopes that are not too far off. They may be interested in uh, this sort of proof of concept. It's more than that. You're doing real science. But the work that GPI is doing, I would guess that they're going to want to get their hands on an instrument similar to it. I think that's that's certainly the the expectation. We did a very basic design sketch for what an instrument like this on the the 30-meter telescope that um, California, Japan, India, and China are putting together would look like, and I'm hoping that there'll be a renewed interest in that. Um, there's actually a group that Frank has been working with from Japan that's been trying to make the design even more sophisticated and put a whole bunch of, of new technologies even going beyond GPI. So that's the next step. But right now, I'd like to concentrate on actually doing science with the one we just finished and you know, <laughs> what we can do about the Jupiters. Frank, you want to say anything about that other project? Yes, yeah, the other project is basically combining what we have been doing for G with GPI and a new type of imager called uh, fiber imagers. So this project is called SATE. Uh, of course, it's very preliminary. Uh, there will be a call for a second generation of instrument for the TMT. The TMT is not yet built, and we are already, talk, we are already talking about the second generation of instruments. So wow. that's kind of uh, uh, interesting. And 
we hope that GPI will basically open the window, will initiate the, 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 the race to search for exoplanets and to image them. And uh, with GPI now on Sky and the first result being published, we hope that the committee of the, the TMT, the TAC committee, will, uh, will choose an instrument like uh, SAIT to image exoplanets using the TMT. And the TMT, of course, that 30-meter telescope that we have, we've talked to the people behind that who are based uh, in Pasadena, not far from the Planetary Society, and we will do that again. GPI, I like that. I like that better than GPI. I think I'll use that in the rest of our conversation. Bruce, how long did it take to make this instrument a reality? We've actually been working on this for almost 10 years, um, which is a long time, but becoming difficult for projects of this scale to, to really advance the field. We did the very first proposal for a, a basic design study um, went in around March 2004. Um, after that, we were doing detailed design work through about 2005, 2006, and then started real construction of hardware around 2008. So it's been coming up on a decade for a very large international team to put all this together and get it onto the telescope. More about the Gemini Planet Imager right after a break. This is Planetary Radio. Greetings, Planetary Radio fans. Bill Nye here. Thanks for listening each week. Did you know the show reaches nearly 100,000 space and science enthusiasts? You and your organization can become part of Planetary Radio by becoming an underwriter. Your generosity will be acknowledged on the air each week, as well as on the Planetary Society website. To learn more, visit planetary.org underwriting. That's planetary.org underwriting. Thanks again for making us your place in space. Hi, this is Emily Lakdawalla of the Planetary Society. We've spent the last year creating an informative, exciting, and beautiful new website. Your Place in Space is now open for business. You'll find a whole new look with lots of images, great stories, my popular blog, and new blogs from my colleagues and expert guests. And as the world becomes more social, we are too, giving you the opportunity to join in through Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and much more. It's all at planetary.org. I hope you'll check it out. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan, and I'm talking with physicist Bruce McIntosh and astronomer Frank Marchese about the Gemini Planet Imager, or GPI, which has just become the most powerful tool yet for enabling us to see exoplanets. Frank serves as public officer, while Bruce is principal investigator for the project, which has been in development for nearly 10 years. That's a long time to develop any device. Does that have to do with, you know, why this is called an extreme adaptive optics instrument? It certainly took that long in part because it was pushing the technology so much that it wasn't just a, a simple scaling up of what we've done before. Um, what people call extreme adaptive optics is something that's really designed to perform an order of magnitude, a factor of 10, better than what we have right now. So GPI rather than correcting the atmospheric turbulence a few hundred times a second, with equivalent of a few hundred degrees of freedom, does it about a thousand times a second, and does a much better job of fitting very precisely um, atmospheric turbulence. And that requires things like deformal mirrors that didn't even exist when we started the project. The adaptive optic systems people use right now use mirrors made out of glass that are pushed around by little piezoelectric actuators. Um, the mirror is about a millimeter thick, the actuators are about a centimeter apart, and they can change the shape enough to correct atmospheric turbulence reasonably well. We need to do it with the equivalent of thousands of these actuators and couldn't actually make a mirror that big with conventional technology. And so as an example of advancing the technology, GPI's deformable mirror is a silicon microchip. It's a 
lithographically etched piece of silicon um, about an inch in diameter rather than being um, tens of centimeters in diameter like the, the normal mirrors that can change its shape with an accuracy of, of a fraction of a nanometer, almost equivalent of the height of a single atom, a thousand times a second to correct for the, the atmospheric turbulence. And so we worked with a company in Boston that developed the technology for this mirror, made the first few examples um, that pretty much only exist for us. So there are a whole bunch of other examples like that through the system of technologies that just didn't exist 10 years ago that we knew we would need and that we worked with collaborators and suppliers to make sure they do exist. The more I hear, the more amazing it is. Uh, Frank, you and I have talked in the past about adaptive optics. Say something about why this is generating, in addition to gigantic uh, telescopes, why this is generating such a revolution in uh, astronomy. Well, simply because with, the, with adaptive optics on a ground-based telescope, we are using, using the full potential of these telescopes. I'm talking about having 8, 10, 30, 45-meter-plus telescopes on the ground. So with adaptive optics, we uh, correct in real time the, the effect of the atmosphere, and that allows us to get an image like if the telescope were in space. For comparison, now we, have, we can observe Io and Europa with a resolution which is quite similar to the resolution of the global observation of, from the Galileo spacecraft taken in 1995. I mean, this is remarkable that from the ground, we can see volcanoes on Io that uh, were detectable before using only a spacecraft in orbit around Jupiter. Yeah, so GPI also has a potential to observe planets in our solar system. And that's a decision that Bruce took early in the development of the instrument. And thank you very much, Bruce, for, for <laughs> that. I mean, that was, a, that was a great decision, I think. So now we, um, with GPI, we can observe the Galilean satellite of Io. We can map this, uh, this, the Galilean satellites. And look what happened recently when we observed Europa with Hubble Space Telescopes. We discovered some activity in the south pole of Europa. So even if we had a spacecraft in orbit around, around Jupiter for 10 years, we still have a lot of stuff to discover on, the, on this Galilean satellite. There is still some mysteries, some signatures of molecules that we did not detect using the space-bound instruments. So GPI will most likely contribute by uh, helping us understanding the composition of the surface of Europa, Ganymede, Callisto, and, and Io volcanoes. We can also observe asteroids, multiple asteroid systems. Uh, as you know, there is a lot of asteroids with moons now. We know that. So with GPI, we can see, we can observe some of these bright, uh, largest asteroids in the main belt, and hopefully we will discover some moons, some small rocks in orbit around larger rocks. And that's going to be an exciting uh, research for me in my, ca in my case, definitely. Bruce, talk about how GPI will also help us to learn about uh, planets that are still under construction, so to speak. So yeah, another class of science beyond um, observing planets and other solar systems to look at the dust and debris left behind the pro by the process of forming planets. And in fact, um, probably our prettiest picture from the first light release is a, a ring of dust around the star HR 4796. In our solar system, which is pretty old, uh, asteroids and comets get eroded by collisions by, by photon pressure from the sun and make bands of dust like the zodiacal light you can see late at night when you're somewhere very dark that kind of would tell you even from outside our solar system that we had asteroids and comets in the first place. In other solar systems much younger with many more asteroids and comets, they can have 10 or a 1,000 times as much dust as our solar system does. Tracing the patterns in that dust can tell you something about how the planets in that solar system formed or are forming 
or even about planets that you can't see. Like, for example, in the, the HR 4796 image, there's a very sharp inner edge to that dust, which probably requires some invisible body, like a not-yet-seen planet, to confine that dust the same way in our solar system Neptune confines the, the comets of the Kuiper Belt, or Jupiter confines the asteroids of the asteroid belt. And I will try to put up that uh, that very beautiful image of uh, HR 4796A at uh, planetary.org uh, slash radio. At least that's where you'll be able to get to the show page where it will be. Uh, the other image, uh, the primary one that has been published, is this uh, shot of a planet, of Beta Pictoris B, one that has been studied uh, for some time now. Is it an illusion, or am I looking at a disk there? You can't really see... So there is a disk in the Beta Pictoris system. So we looked... Um, just to make life easier to start with, we looked at systems that already were known to have planets in them. So the Beta Pictoris planet was discovered by the Europeans um, several years ago. And Beta Pic does have a, a disk of dust seen almost edge-on from our solar system. So like looking at a dinner plate from the side, it's a very narrow line that the planet lines up from. We don't think you can see that in the images we released, um, although we're doing a lot of post-processing to try and see if we can pull the disk out. So we think all you're seeing there is the the planet itself, which is probably about eight times the, the size of Jupiter and with a temperature of about 1,600 degrees. Well, and the planet itself appears in this image, not just a point, uh, a source, but can actually see some diameter of the planet, or again, is that an illusion? That's, that's a processing artifact caused ah. by the, the image processing we're using to try and pull the planet out of the... Um, out of the scattered background light. So the planet itself is definitely just a point source. That's what I expected. Yep. Something you, do, you, you don't see on the image, Matt, is simply that it's also that we don't have only an image, we have a spectra of this planet. Ah. So there is another dimension to add on this image, which is the emission light coming from the, from the planet itself. So using this spectrum, we'll be able to know the composition of the planet and uh, infer the type of molecules you have on the top of the atmosphere of the planet. And this is, these are giant planets like, uh, like Jupiter, most likely, or even larger. But maybe variation, variation as well will be, will be visible from some of them. And there's nothing like being able to get the, uh, the spectra of a source like this. Uh, with any uniquely powerful instrument like this, everybody <laughs> in the astronomy community that can make use of it is going to be trying to knock down your door. Do you already see the demand building for this? Yeah, Jim and I built this as a, a facility instrument, so it's available to the whole astronomy community, and they'll actually start what's called science verification, the kind of early testing observations in the first half of this year. There'll be a call for proposals going out for astronomers who want to use it. And then, Meanwhile, our job as the people who built it is to make sure that we document it and make sure everything is understandable enough for other people to, to take advantage of it. We'll get to do one of the larger projects with it starting in the second half of this year. We're going to survey about 600 stars in the solar neighborhood to look for the planets they might host. But lots and lots of other groups will have the opportunity to do other kind of science programs, ranging from the solar system stuff we're talking about to the disks to planets around different stars than the ones we want to look at to maybe looking at evolved stars at red giants and the outflows of, of gas from them. So we're hoping it'll be one of the most used instruments on the Gemini Telescope. Gentlemen, before we close out, uh, one more question about the future. Can you imagine an instrument like GPI on some future space telescope? Absolutely. I think that's the, the holy grail in this field you were kind of leading us towards earlier, is seeing a planet like Earth and actually getting the spectrum Frank was mentioning to see in the 
that planet like Earth, evidence of water and oxygen and all those life-associated elements. That's really going to require a spacecraft and probably a spacecraft built only for this purpose. But when it does fly, it will have to use a lot of the same technology, masks to block the star, even deformable mirrors, though there's no atmospheric turbulence. To see planets, you have to correct even for little things like tiny polishing imperfections in the main mirror of the telescope, and so you'll need a deformable mirror for that. In fact, the most likely way to fly such a thing, NASA has just in the process of approving a mission called WFIRST, which is mostly a wide-field telescope to look for the signature of dark energy, but it will probably fly with a 2.4-meter diameter telescope, which is big enough that it's worth putting a, a coronagraph on it. And so NASA's in the process of designing something that looks a lot like GPI with a spectrograph like ours and deformable mirrors like ours to fly on this WFIRST telescope and look at maybe super-Earth-sized planets. Gentlemen, I just, I just want to congratulate you once again. It's a, a tremendous uh, achievement. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Gemini Planet Imager Principal Investigator Bruce McIntosh at the Lawrence Livermore National Labs and GPI Public Officer Frank Marchese of the SETI Institute. I'll be back in moments with our own Bruce. It's that time again. Time for Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. He uh, is going to talk to us about what's up in the night sky, because this is What's Up. Hey, welcome back. Hey there. Hi there. Hello there. <laughs> we're as happy as can be. We are as happy as can be. <laughs> Boy, we're dating ourselves. Do tell. All right. Well, Jupiter's just passed opposition. That means the implication being it's rising in the east around sunset, setting in the west around uh, dawn. And it's big and bright and lovely, so check it out in the east in the early evening, if you catch this show right out of the block, you can uh, see it hanging near the full or almost full moon on Tuesday and Wednesday, January 14th and 15th. But it'll it'll be up there for, for weeks and months, so uh, check out Jupiter. We also have Mars getting brighter over the next two or three months. It's coming up in the middle of the night in the east, and Saturn is up uh, pretty high now in the east in the pre-dawn. So uh, check all those out as well as the lovely constellations in the sky. We move on to this week in space history. A guy we might hear a little bit about later, Galileo. Galileo Galilei discovered uh, the largest moon of the solar system, Ganymede. Not that he knew it was that. He was just busily <laughs> discovering moons around Jupiter around this time in 1610. And then in 2005, we'll, we skip ahead just a wee bit. Uh, the, the, the Huygens probe, the European Space Agency Huygens probe, went through the atmosphere and landed on Titan, Saturn's moon, this week in 2005. As usual, hard to believe it was that long ago. And around the turn of the century, both of my sons were born in this week. Oh, I didn't know that. Both in the same week, separated Ish, by some one, years. Yeah. Separated by one week, three years and one week. That's, that's great. Well, wish them a happy birthday for all of us. I will indeed. We move on to Random Space Effect. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I love it. I, I always enjoy these kind of analogies. Pulled this one off the uh, Chandra X-Ray Observatory website. And uh, if the state of Colorado were as smooth as the surface of the Chandra X-Ray Observatory mirrors... Pike's Peak, which is 14,000 feet, 4,300 meters, would be less than uh, an inch or a couple centimeters tall. <laughs> That's great. I love these, as you know. 
ridiculously smooth they have to be, particularly when you get to shut such short wavelengths. Yeah, as it's these comparisons that I'm just crazy about, you know. Right. All right, I'll try to find you more. Thank you. On to the trivia question. We asked you who recorded the first observations that indicated that Venus had phases, so phases like the moon. A whole slew of people came up with this, and as you said, we come back to that really great guy, one of my heroes. (laughs) It turns out if you're uh, competent and have one of the early telescopes and decide to stare at things, you you learn a lot of stuff. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, he may have been the first guy to point one of those things with lenses at the sky. Whether he was or not, he sure discovered a lot of cool stuff, like the phases of Venus, it was Galileo. Galileo Galilei. He looked up and and noticed that it was doing the stuff the moon does, which which told us what? It told us that Venus was not just for women. <laughs> no, uh, it told us that it was yet another uh, strong indication when people thought it through that the the planets revolved around the sun, not around the earth. Our listener, Wojtek Navalek, said, uh, yeah, his first words after saying, seeing this were, boy, that's going to, should I say it? Tick people off? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll clean it up slightly. Boy, that's going to tick a lot of people off. <laughs> he didn't use quite that language. Uh, well, no, he probably said it in Italian. It's, it's true. <laughs> it's a family show, though. You want to know who won this? I desperately do. It's James DeYarman of Las Vegas, Nevada, where I just was in That's a amazing. terrible crowd making my way around the Consumer Electronics Show, which uh, was just massively crowded, but fascinating also. James said, indeed, that it was Galileo. For that, he's going to get a year in space wall calendar. And we're going to give away at least one more of those to uh, the winner of the question that you're about to ask for this week. All right. We're talking about constellations. What northern hemisphere constellation is best known for looking like the letter W or some parts of the year, the letter M? Go to planetary.org slash radio, radio guest, radio host, radio uh, celebrity radio, radio <laughs> contest, planetary.org slash radio contest and uh, get your entry to us by when, Matt? By the 20th, by Monday, January 20th at 2 p.m. Pacific time. And you will have a chance to win uh, yet another of these year in space wall calendars uh, from the same folks who make the year in space desk calendar, the source of uh, random space facts, right? Not random space facts. Not random space facts. Occasionally, but usually sort of the, the always source of this week in space history. And the wall calendar, by the way, includes random space facts. Ah, right. Where can they see the calendars? Yearinspace.com. We're done. This was a quick visit. This was a, a quick but, but highly enjoyable visit. Oh, I'm glad. Uh, all right, everybody. Go out there. Look up in the night sky and think about Ziploc or non-trademark versions of Ziploc bags. Thank you, and good night. He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society. He could find his way out of a Ziploc bag. He's a smart guy. He joins us every week here for What's Up. Next week, the entire cosmos with Jay Pasikoff and Alex Filipenko. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by the highly adaptive members of the society. Clear skies. Clear skies.